Want to make your own podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easy, then distribute it everywhere, and even earn money. All in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. Here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then, you can distribute your podcast to Spotify, and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel like I have an outlet for the creativity and ideas I want to share with the world. I recommend you give it a try. We all have a voice, so share it with the world. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters to get started today. Lord just kept nudging me. One of the nudges, probably the one that really launched me into the further research that I did was the interview that Rob Skiba did with Tim Bentz. Prior to that point, I had not put together the Nephilim and Jekyll Island. I knew that the Federal Reserve was corrupt. There was defilement in our monetary system, all of that. I think Tim and I, it sounds like we may um, operate in a similar way where we just go where the Holy Spirit tells us to go and we do what he lays out for us to do. And I try and do it in the timing of the Lord. I'm not always successful, but I'm learning to stay in the timing of the Lord. When you look at the name um, Nakash for the serpent and you dive into the Hebrew of that, it actually, um, one of the definitions is engaging in trafficking. And so, you know, could that have been what Satan was engaged in and that spirit comes through with the monetary system, with the defilement, and there's there's that, that human trafficking as well. I don't feel like I was probably the first one talking to it. Rob was certainly dealing with Nephilim stuff on the air before I was. My journey has been just simple acts of obedience and sometimes I don't have a clue why it's really important until I get done <laughs> and, and then, it, then it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger but I've found this pattern all over the world I've, I've dealt with about 28 altars now it's not always blatantly related to currency but it is always related to trade routes and to commerce and to how people's lives are affected and where cities were built modern day Shipping and traffic just for commerce, especially between nations, is almost always following ancient trade routes. When you look carefully at those ancient trade routes, I'm finding these altars in many places.
Welcome to the Days of Noah podcast, where we talk all things biblical, supernatural, and strange. Today we have an extra special episode to bring to you. For the first time ever, Dr. Laura Sanger and Timothy Bentz together meeting one another in the airwaves. And this exclusive interview, guys, is one that I hope that you cherish for years to come as what is my hope is a starting point, uh, a beginning as we co-labor in the Lord in exposing evil, in understanding ancient roots of defilement, in preparing ourselves for what the dark forces of this world are setting us up for and how God is going to overcome and show his bride, the ecclesia, uh, the finest hour that is yet to come for us and God, our captain of the army. So enjoy this episode with Dr. Laura and Tim. We had an interesting time at the beginning as uh, Tim was running late, and so we were able to chat with Dr. Laura for a time. And um, Luke brings us in with kind of how we got acquainted with Dr. Laura through uh, Nate and Luke's show, Blurry Creatures. And Tim and Laura uh, recount a little bit of just the pivotal interview that the late Rob Skiba gave with uh, Tim Bentz about the Federal Reserve and Jekyll Island and how God used that to awaken so many and inspire by the Holy Spirit, Dr. Laura, to write her book. So enjoy this first part of our talk with Laura and Tim. Brief background on me. Um, Well, really, when it comes to how I found you, uh, tribute blurry creatures, Nate and Luke. Um, yes. And so you've been an, an amazing, uh, guest on there and a resource to myself. Um, some of the things that you brought up in your book, um, I had already learned a little bit as far as the Jekyll Island aspect by reading the creatures from Jekyll Island, but man, you had a totally different spin on it. And, um, then some of the interactions that you had with um, a Nephilim host mother, I had actually uh, kind of gone down that rabbit hole with uh, Pastor Doug Riggs um, and th- his ministry and how the Lord had put those certain individuals that were hurting and needing healing in his path. And then he went on that journey. And uh, so it's interesting how the Lord will connect different individuals in the body of Christ as you're researching and you're opening. It's almost like, what is it, the saying, the, when the student is ready, the, the teacher will appear. So, mm. it, you know, so I'm, I'm, you find these different teachers and you've definitely been on the list uh, that's been feeding me. So thank you for that. Oh, well, that's wonderful to hear. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it's interesting. I I um, got into Doug Riggs uh, material as well and, uh, you know, his ministry prior to meeting Elle. Elle is the gal that um, I did the interview with on Blurry Creatures. And 
um, discovering Doug Riggs. And then also I spoke at a conference um, in 2021 in Gettysburg and I met Gina Phillips. Gina Phillips also ministers to high level um, satanic ritual abuse overcomers. And she had been connected with Doug Riggs. And so she was getting the three of us together. And I actually, I think I was the one that suggested to Nate and Luke, maybe have Doug Riggs on your show. They did one interview with him. They did. Um, And so in October of 2021, I was at another conference um, in Frederick and that's where Gina Phillips was. And we were, um, she's just a wealth of information and an amazing woman of God. I just highly respect her. And she, anyway, she was saying that she wanted to connect Doug and myself with her. So doing like a three-way and we had set it up and then Doug Riggs, um, it was his anniversary and his wife wanted for their anniversary for him to block out two weeks uninterrupted. Hmm. And so we had to reschedule and in the reschedule, he died. And so, um, it was, I mean, it was tragic that he, you know, passed when he did, but I really am so grateful because, you know, his material really was the foundation for me being able to be open to having a relationship, a friendship with Elle. Had I not been exposed to that, I, I probably would not have known what to do. And so I'm so grateful. Um, and then when yeah. Tim comes on, I just can't wait to meet him. So this, because... this is your first time communicating. Yes. And we yes. just happenstanced because of, uh, but yeah, your testimony, I think it was with Nate and Luke on uh, Blurry Creatures talking about Tim Bentz. And then we did our own kind of, we, we created this podcast basically like a book club. You know, where it's just me and my brother just kind of have a conversation. We'd bring in some people, a uh, third third friend, and we'd just kind of, let's read this, let's listen to this, and let's have a conversation about it. And then it kind of evolved into having guests and stuff. So but, some, of uh, our, some of our earlier episodes was um, reviewing and talking about Rob Skiba's interview with Tim about Jekyll Island and how fascinating that was. And then the latter portion of that, he talks about the gatekeeping principle. And so we had, we did an episode on that and, and Tim allowed us to post that like 45 minute section as an episode in itself. And so, yeah, when I'm hearing about you describing spiritual mapping, I thought, you know, I feel like there's some overlap here and maybe some correlation. And I would love to get the two of you on. And here we are. (laughs) <laughs> and I think it's significant, too, uh, that we're recording on Halloween, even though we won't release this for a few weeks. But um, as the veil of spiritual darkness seems to be thin this time of year, we're pushing back against that. Yes, and, amen. And hopefully, yeah, God fills this time with with revelation and understanding and, and growth and just benefit for everybody listening. So we're privileged to have you. And hopefully Tim will jump in here in a minute. How how did you, while we while we still don't have uh, Tim on, uh, how did you first come across? Was it that Rob Skiba interview? I mean, that's mm-hmm. what I had discovered ten plus years ago. Yeah, I think I listened to it um, at least seven years ago. Okay, I don't know. So, is it a ten year old interview? Was that ten years ago? I feel like it was like twenty fourteen, twenty twelve, right in there that it was done. Okay, maybe? that's what I okay. remember too. Yeah. yeah. 
So I wrote a spiritual mapping prayer brief on the Federal Reserve in 2014 and, you know, gathered some intercessors. We prayed through some of the targeted prayer strategies that I had identified and I um, really kind of put it aside, but the Lord just kept nudging me that I wasn't done. And I think I was, you know, I was exercising on our treadmill and I happened to find that interview and I started listening to it. And that was, that was the first time where I had heard of any connection between the Nephilim and Jekyll Island. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And then um, the Holy Spirit said, I'm going to bring you back to this. And boy, did he ever. (laughs) So I'm thinking just because he's running a little bit late, and I want to make sure that I'm able to both share about the just um, an overview of spiritual mapping, because you know, lots of people uh, these days are actually talking about spiritual mapping, and it's not necessarily what I do. Um, so I want to make sure that the spiritual mapping that I'm talking about, your listeners understand. Um, so for example, people are calling spiritual mapping, and they're doing like energy work on land and stuff like that. That's not at all what we're engaged in. And so I just want to lay that foundation. And then from there, kind of launch into telling this story of what's unfolded this summer. Um, But I also want his feedback. So I know that he can stay longer than I can. So as long as you can kind of navigate to make sure I can tell that story. And because (laughs) my Romans 12 gifts, I'm a mercy and teacher um, as far as my redemptive gifts And so even when I tell a story, um, I take those teachable moments to lay the biblical foundation to what the story is, just so people don't get confused. So I just wanted to give you a heads up. That sounds great. Well, maybe we should, um, Luke, maybe we should go towards the back end since Laura will have to leave before Tim does. We were wanting to ask at the end of things, but maybe we'll ask at the start while you're here is kind of what your spiritual sense or God is showing you about current events regarding prophecy, Israel, what's coming in the world, what's what's coming to America. Any any sense on kind of that? that I do, thing? but the Lord is not releasing me to speak publicly about it yet. So um, it's in my book, <laughs> chapter 19, Hidden Agenda of Zionism. Ah, uh, yes. Um, and I, I'm talking um, privately with people who are asking me, people that are emailing and those types of things. Okay. But like with, um, I did an episode with Blurry Creatures on the Kazarian kids. They named it on the Kazarians. And I literally waited a year and a half before the Lord said, okay, now's the time. And so I just continue to wait for the Lord to say, okay, now's the time. So I haven't been given the green light just to speak publicly, but I appreciate your question. No, not at all. And I appreciate your, you know, our our mutual respect for the Lord's timing. I think uh, Tim has that in common with you. He's mentioned that over the years, he has something like 20 books ready to publish and God hasn't given him (laughs) the green light. Mm. And and he says, I'll see people um, get famous out of something that I... God showed me years ago or what have you, and they will teach on it. And God's like, nope, I want you to live it before I let you mm. let it out. So yeah, no, I totally respect that. 
You know, I had we had a guest on, and uh, and there's some counter uh, opinion to this about America being Babylon the Great. Do you have any opinion on that as far as Revelation goes, and and do you feel like America fits the bill? I don't think it's only America that okay. fits that bill. Yeah. I think it's much bigger than any one nation. Yeah, there's um. I wish I had remembered his name. Uh, Pastor Gabe is a guy I found on on Twitter, and one of his co-pastors has like a 20-hour study on all of the similarities why they think it lines up to America specifically. So I, I, I would be of the opinion that the, the spe- it's more a spirit of Babylon, kind of like the spirit of the Antichrist. That's what Gary now, Wayne was telling us. No, yes. obviously there will be a, a literal Antichrist in the future. Now, is there a literal Babylon, like reborn, like a nation, America? I, I don't know. I, I think I would agree with you, uh, Laura, that it's it, it's definitely a global spirit, and uh, it, many countries could align. It's, I mean, what are they pushing? Globalism, right? Yeah. So many countries could link arms together and fit that bill as being Babylon, possibly. Maybe we, if you don't mind, if we can get started and I can just share a little bit about myself and I can intro how I got to writing this book and I can um, mention Tim and if he's on by then, great. If not, we can just yes. keep rolling. Let's do that. Yeah, it's our privilege uh, for Luke and I to welcome Dr. Laura Sanger here with us to the Days of Noah podcast and and uh, Mr. Tim Benz will be joining us shortly, but yeah, it's just a privilege to get to talk to you, Laura. Um, we chatted a little bit ago about, you know, um, the high esteem we we hold you up in on how we found you on Blurry Creatures and those interviews. And for us personally, this was our inspiration to start our show. And then your connection to uh, Tim Benz with listening to Rob Skiba's incredible interview about Jekyll Island and how that tied into your book. And so there's all these connections. And then just in the last, you know, six, eight months, I've gotten to be friends with um, Rod Smith from the Millennial Mustard Seed. And I know that, yeah, yeah, I know that you've had some connection with him for a few years. So that's really neat. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so it's it's our privilege to have you. And, uh, yeah, I want to make the most of our time. So, yeah, why don't you just kind of jump in with that and and um, whatever you want to say about yourself and, and your connection to Tim and how you got started in kind of this journey of, you know, the Federal Reserve, Jekyll Island, all of that good stuff. <laughs> well, I, first of all, it's wonderful to be with you both, and I'm excited to meet uh, Tim. So I just a little bit of my background. Um, I'm a clinical psychologist by profession, and so um you know, I was involved in doing clinical work for about 22 years. I retired about 10 years ago. And um, I'm just one of those people that absolutely loves to learn. I've got like this naturally inquisitive mind. So I'm constantly formulating questions in my head to research. And so, um, you know, research has really been kind of part of my life since 1989. I, I began working at the VA Medical Center in La Jolla, California, And I was in the Department of Psychiatry doing research in schizophrenia, and I absolutely loved it. And so ever since then, I've been involved in some level of research. And so um, when the Lord prompted me to write this book, The Roots of the Federal Reserve, um, 
it was a very unusual um, experience for me, but I was so blessed to be on this journey. And I often refer to um, the Lord as Jehovah Sneaky because (laughs) he will just, (laughs) you know, when you give him your yes, uh, it's amazing where he leads you. I mean, I feel like I'm living Ephesians 3.20. And um, so just to back up a little bit, um, one of the skill sets that I have in addition to research is um, spiritual mapping. I've been involved in that for I think it's 26 years now. And back in 2014, um, I felt like the Lord was uh, nudging me to write a spiritual mapping prayer brief on the Federal Reserve. So that's what I did. It was about five pages long. And um, from there, it just launched into something much greater. Um, So (laughs) I... In 2014, we gathered some intercessors and we prayed through um, the targeted prayer strategies that we had. And I'll explain spiritual mapping more in a moment. But um, I really thought after you know praying through those strategies that my assignment was done. But I would say over the next maybe year and a half or so, the Lord just kept nudging me to pick it back up. And I one of the nudges, probably the one that really launched me into uh, the further research that I did was the interview that Rob Skiba did with Tim Bentz. And prior to that point, I had not put together the Nephilim and Jekyll Island. Mm -hmm. Um, I knew that the Federal Reserve was corrupt. There was defilement in our monetary system, all of that. So anyways, I'm exercising, you know, at home on our treadmill and I'm listening to this podcast and And I'm fascinated by it because um, I think Tim and I, it sounds like we may um, operate in a similar way where we just go where the Holy Spirit tells us to go and we do what he lays out for us to do. And I try and do it in the timing of the Lord. I'm not always successful, but I'm learning (laughs) to stay in the timing of the Lord. So just listening to his story, I was riveted and I really felt a connection um, in the spirit to, to the work that he does. So anyways, the Holy spirit told me after I listened to that interview, he said, I'm going to bring you back to this. And boy, did he ever bring me back to it? So, um, in 2016, I think, I think I listened to that interview maybe in the early part of 2016. I'm trying to remember, but definitely in the summer of 2016 is when I began researching and writing the roots of the Federal Reserve. And I spent four years yeah. researching this. And I have to tell you, like I, I wrote it in what I call real time, which means um, I, I have no idea the twists and turns that this investigative journey would take. I didn't know if anything would connect in the end of the book. I didn't even know what the end of the book looked like. Right. Um, and so I remember in chapter five, it's one of my favorite chapters because I'm much more personal with the reader. Mm-hmm. I remember distinctly in that chapter realizing, Lord, I have no idea what you're doing here. I feel like I'm on the verge of some major paradigm shifts while I'm writing this book. And that definitely happened for me. So I'm super grateful um, for the the whole journey because I I love treasure hunts and the Lord 
really led me on this massive treasure hunt. And every day I would wake up and my prayer was Jeremiah 33, three, which is called to me. And I will tell you great and unsearchable things that you do not know. And that definitely happened for me. So what I did in my book is I traced this Nephilim agenda from the days of Noah to the U.S. dollar. And I um, identify, you know, how this agenda has defiled our monetary system and practically every institution in our land. And so really, it's it's a massive spiritual mapping book. Um, and I'm just so grateful because Tim Bentz was part of that and because yeah. he gave the Lord his yes Long ago, I heard it, gave the Lord my yes, and literally it has changed the trajectory of my life. So I'm so excited to meet him when he's able to come on. Yes. All right. I think he's joining us now. Tim, can you hear us? I can. Oh, oh fantastic. I'm so excited <laughs> to meet you, Tim. Hi, Laura. Hi. <laughs> can you see me? I don't see my video. No, no. no. It, it shows it shows a camera with an X through it. Um Feel, I mean, feel free to, to hop back out and hop back in and see if that does it. Sometimes that makes the difference. Okay. But while, while you're doing that. Um, I got a roofer outside, so my dog's <laughs> Your dog's excited. I can't mute them. That's all right. Uh, yeah, well, one. Okay, I'll be right back. Okay, then. sounds good. All right, go, go ahead, Laura, with where you were leaving off there. Yeah, so I'm just, I'm so grateful for this journey that the Lord's led me on. And like I said, I I refer to him as Jehovah Sneaky because I could not have imagined. I didn't even know, first of all, that the book was going to get published. I really thought that it was a new form of intercession because that's what the Lord spoke to me as I was researching and writing, that it was a new form of warfare. So that's really all that I needed was knowing that, okay, I am interceding, I am warring on behalf of our defiled monetary system. And so then when the book got published, um, I I really had no idea what was going to, what that would lead to. So I'm I'm always grateful for each and every opportunity because I know that, you know, by by Tim saying yes to the Lord and by me saying yes to the Lord, that's contagious. And other people will give the Lord their yes and Man, we are just growing and maturing in the body of Christ, and I'm so excited about that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's, uh, man, I I just can't say enough about how impactful, like you said, uh, that interview that he gave was. And, you know, I've... I've had it. We've had a chance to honor Rob Skiba a bit on the show. We've we've had his son, uh, Jeremiah. And his co-host, Jake, uh, they do a show called Skiba News Nation. And he says that kind of one of his highest uh, aspirations is to uphold his dad's legacy and everything that he stood for and taught. And um, yeah, we lost a a lot of heavyweights the last few years. We were talking about Doug Riggs a a few minutes ago. And um, Luke, you've mentioned uh, Russ Dizdar, right? Um, And Rob. And Dr. Tom, uh, Tom Horn just recently passed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. And we've had, um, uh, we got to have, uh, Rob's widow, Sheila Skiba on as they talked about their book, the protocol that kills with, with their good friends that co-wrote that and, and what happened to Rob. And so, 
it's just fascinating to see all the connections that God has, has brought about <laughs> to lead us to this point. So, um, yeah. And, and before I, I, I forget to, to mention it, cause we were asking you a little bit about your kind of your spiritual sense of, of world events and how God's not uh, released you to share that. But when the time comes, uh, we would love to connect with you down the road. I think that would really be, you know, just fascinating to kind of know as God reveals in his timing, you know, uh, what's going on. I see me now. You do? <laughs> oh, we don't see you though you're, yet. You're still an orange disc. You look like a setting sun. We believe you're there though. <laughs> I'm, I'm in uh, crypto mode, I guess. <laughs> That's all right. I don't know. That's why, all right. I don't know what it's doing because it shows that it's on. Yeah, that's strange. Well, maybe we should just go with it with the with the time yeah, we have. Like, yeah, I don't want to take up a uh, doctor's time. Yeah, no problem. Well, we we really appreciate you coming on again, Tim, and and we're privileged to have you back and and to get to meet Laura virtually. And we've been just saying that it's exciting to bring the two of you together because of all these connections and inspirations that God has used. So why don't we let the two of you just kind of chat and get to and introduce each other uh, to one another? Well, I don't know, Tim, if you were um, able to hear a little bit of what I was saying, but um, I am just so thankful that you give the Lord your yes and that you're obedient to where he sends you because that. That interview you did with Rob Skiba years ago, I listened to it probably about seven years ago. And um, I had already written a spiritual mapping prayer brief on the Federal Reserve in 2014. And um, we had prayed through some prayer strategies that we identified. And I thought, you know, my assignment was done with that and I was moving on. But the Lord just kept nudging me to pick it back up. And so one of the I would say kind of the major turning points for me was listening to your interview. And I had never, at that point, I had not connected the Nephilim with Jekyll Island. And so after I listened to your interview, the Holy Spirit said, I'm going to bring you back to this. And boy, did he ever. So I'm just so grateful to meet you. And it's wonderful um, to spend some time together. Well, I'm excited too. I feel like God has used this whole topic as a catalyst for a lot of people around the world that um, I don't feel like I was probably the first one talking to it. Rob was certainly dealing with Nephilim stuff on the air before I was. Um, and I give him a lot of credit for even drawing all that out of me. Um, my journey has been just simple acts of obedience and sometimes I don't have a clue why it's really important until I get done <laughs> and, and then, it, <laughs> then it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger um, but I've found this pattern all over the world I've, I've dealt with about 28 altars now in different places and it's a similar pattern it's not always blatantly related to currency but it is always related to trade routes and to commerce and to how people's lives are affected and where cities were built. You know, um, modern day shipping and traffic just for commerce, especially between nations, is almost always following ancient trade routes. And when you look carefully at those ancient trade routes, I'm finding these altars in many places. 
and sometimes they're hidden in plain sight. You know, they're just taken for granted because they've always been there, or there's something that somebody didn't know was there, or in the case of Jekyll Island, somebody built their house on top of one. You know, <laughs> and, uh, that that gives it a whole different level of stuff. But when I found uh, some of the others. Um, in different part in different countries, uh, they often were just artifacts out in the middle of somewhere that people weren't valuing anymore, and sometimes they didn't know who they were connected with. So, you know, I found a lot of times they get misappropriated where they think they're a Native American item, and maybe they go back further. Um, I found one in Haiti, for instance, that that I now believe is about four thousand years old, but. It is where all of the voodoo altars were also being erected on top of one of the highest mountains in Haiti. And so everybody that currently lives in Haiti thought it was just related to voodoo stuff, you know. And I was like, no, the voodoo stuff probably is attracted to it because it's been here longer, you know. But why is it here, you know? And who brought it? It may not be the native tribe that was originally there that Columbus ran into. It may be older than them, you know. So, but I've been looking at the pattern of why does it get involved in the the trade, and I did find one thing that I think makes some interesting. I'm still exploring it. I want to go back to Turkey and search this out a little bit more. But the first printing or minting of coins known to be in the world dates back to three places, and all three have some historical claim on being the first. And one of those is Jerusalem with the with the shekel that's the current weight that's listed in Scripture. That dates back to at least King Solomon's era. But most people think it was King David that started doing that. And um, the other one is ancient Tyre, which was around the same time as Solomon's reign. And the other one is Thyatira in modern-day Turkey, and I found out that the Lydia, the lady that's mentioned in Scripture that connected with Paul, she was uh, either directly related or the um, in the royal family of the king of Thyatira. Oh, wow. And um, the country was known as Lydia back then, so it may have been her country. Um still searching that out a little bit, but when she said to Paul in the book of Acts, if you consider me a believer, come to my house, she was essentially inviting him to Asia. And the Holy Spirit had told him he couldn't go to Asia until he meets Lydia, and suddenly he's got a green light to go to Asia. Well, he he was Saul of Tarsus. You know. So the city he was born in relates to the ancient religion of Baal or the Tarsus bull represented that. Sometimes it gets named different things. So you see it called different things in Greece and some of that surrounding area. But worshiping the bull goes back to what we see that was happening in Exodus. You know, where they made a golden calf. Um, so I found the confusing part of this for archaeologists is often in different cultures, these things get named differently. But it's the same style of worship or the same type of rituals. And the the worship of Baal um, involved agriculture, seasons, trying to control the livelihood, the, the trade, 
And this was where the Silk Road and the water routes connected, you know. Uh, Ist, what we look at Istanbul now is Constantinople at one time. The reason why that was such an important city is because it connected the trade routes all over the world. You know, uh, it was an ancient New York City, you know, and so the, the land routes and the water routes all met there. And the Silk Road especially becomes known for, um, you know, mostly trade with China now. But back then it was a large network of transactions. So I, I took the theory just from extrapolating from scripture that something is mentioned in scripture. It's very lightly covered, just talks about Solomon going out in ships to, you know, bring back these amazing goods. And it actually gives us an inventory list of some of the things he brought back. And he did that in partnership with the king of of, uh, of Tyre. You know, uh, we know from other historical records that he partnered with Pharaoh of Egypt also. And so I think the three of them made a pact to decide how to map out the trade routes for the world. And those three-year journeys probably circumnavigated the world. Um I think they figured out how to, you know, move goods and things across the seas and as well as land. Uh, Columbus had a Phoenician map when he, that's how he knew about the circumnavigating capability of, you know, sailing north and catching a current to go over to what he thought was America's and then come back. Uh, he didn't know the right names for the spot he was headed to, but he understood that ocean current from an ancient map that dates back to the period that Solomon was king. And uh, he didn't discover it. He was rediscovering something that the ancient Phoenicians already knew about. You know, Well, the ancient Phoenicians date back to the Syrophoenicians or the combination of the Canaanites and the Syrians coming together. That's the king of Tyre. And the Philistines joining up, you know, and the Philistines and the Canaanites have some kind of mixing in blood that's going on. I've never searched out how extensive that was from a purely, you know, genealogical perspective. But sometimes what what I call Canaanite now really might be better attributed to the Philistines or to the Syrians. It's really hard to understand uh, until you get the time period accurately. But the same religion seems to flow through all of those groups or similar idolatry stuff, and especially their understanding of how to control commerce connected with some type of idolatry. And then the idea of putting that on a coin, I think, was a way of connecting idolatry in a way that forces everyone in the population to transact with your idol. That's the premise I began to look at, that God set the proper weight for coins, but he didn't necessarily tell them uh, that we know of what to put on the coin. And so that taking something that was probably a gift from God saying, here's how you can con- conduct commerce righteously, and here's how you keep your weights and measures correct so that you're honest and, ru- and just and righteous, and then it was a way of defiling that by taking something God had initiated and putting an idol on it. Yeah, yeah Tim, and you and you had mentioned uh, when we had talked previous about the Jewish rabbis telling you the significance of Jesus and the money changers because it was robbing them of their souls because of what 
the idolatrous symbol on those coins meant, right? Right. In Scripture, it doesn't give you the full snapshot. It just makes hints to this. But we have one story where Jesus sends Peter fishing to go get a coin to pay their taxes. If he fished it out of the sea, he most likely fished out one that had a menorah on it. Because as long as Herod was king, they had taken the menorah off and put a picture of Baal on it or a picture of Caesar. Yeah. And so when when Jesus paid his taxes, he probably paid it with a more ancient coin that was not defiled. And then you come along to turning the tables over. He's not turning the tables over, I think, because they were cheating at the table. It's because the whole commerce system had become uh, idolatrized. And I did find a letter between uh, Herod and Annas and um, Pontius Pilate that gave Annas control of the temple, but part one of the requirements of it was that they had to allow the coins to be trans, uh, transferred to essentially um, Caesar's um, perspective. So they took the menorah off of the Jerusalem shekel and put either a face of Baal or a face of Caesar on it. And that means that when I had to go pay my temple tax, which was not a tax just to support the temple, that was the the right of redemption. That was a down payment for your redemption. You know, it was saying we're going to pay a half a shekel for every male until the Messiah comes. Tim, would that be similar to what the Catholic Church would say, where you're paying your 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 uh your tithe or you're putting, you're basically buying someone's soul. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's the foundation for the thinking about indulgences, why indulgences later became something that, that was easy to sell because people were used to having to, to give a small thing that got you on the list of the righteous. Wow. And here we have uh, on our dollar bill, you know, all of the occult symbols, the unfinished pyramid. Right. It's it's in God we trust, but which God? Exactly. And and Laura, didn't you have something in your book about human trafficking and a certain term wasn't there? Something to do with that that had to do with trade, but it was like trading in humans. I thought there was I thought that might have been in your book, but I could be mistaken. Do you recall? Um, yes, I did write about that. Um, when you look at, I'm trying to remember. Um, I think it was when I was looking at Sodom and Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, but when you look at the name um, Nakash for the serpent, um, and you dive into the Hebrew of that, it actually um, one of the definitions is engaging in trafficking. And so, you know, could that have been? what Satan was engaged in and that, um, you know, that spirit comes through, uh, with the monetary system, with the defilement. Um, and there's, there's that, that human trafficking as well. I talk about that with, um, the Khazarians, uh, as well. Well, the trafficking of souls is the way I would describe it, where we, we try to investigate sex trafficking or human persons trafficking and not really even consider, that some of the industries in the world are set up to try to traffic souls. Well, they want you to make a pact to something occult in order to get uh, promoted. 
right the music industry hollywood um lots of businesses uh probably on a scale we don't understand the banking industry at very high levels operates this way even who gets into government at ultra high levels may be because they make a secret alliance like this yeah absolutely wow yeah um so Laura, uh, you were saying earlier about kind of giving the foundation for spiritual mapping and some recent examples. If if we're if you guys are okay with me switching gears there, um, and then and then kind of getting Tim's opinion on that, and then as we bridge that into um, Tim, what you've described as as gatekeeping and spiritual gatekeeping, what we allow as believers in our heart that spirit can then affect at least our family, but then potentially our city or even greater. So maybe, um, yeah, if you guys are okay with that uh, kind of direction, um, maybe, Laura, you could kind of set that up. Yes, absolutely. So I just wanted to provide a little bit of an overview for spiritual mapping, um, just so your listeners are aware of, you know, how I use the term and what I've been involved in um, for the past 25, 26 years. So um, essentially what spiritual mapping consists of is it's, you know, gathering research on the physical, social, and spiritual pulse of like a society, a people group, a city, a region, an institution, whatever it is uh, that that mapping assignment, you know, the Lord gives you. And what it it involves digging through history to uncover the ancient roots of defilement. So there's three components that are involved in spiritual mapping. There's reconnaissance, there's research, and then there's informed intercession. So with reconnaissance, what we do is we will send teams of people out onto the land to discern what's happened there. What are the spiritual dynamics at play um, in this territory? And, you know, biblical foundation for that, we see examples when Moses sent the 12 spies into the land of Canaan, and then when Joshua sent the two spies into Jericho, then also we see Paul, you know, on his missionary journeys, when he would go into a city for the first time, he would walk around that city, get a sense of the spiritual dynamic. And that would not only inform his intercession, but that would um, give him effective strategies for sharing the gospel message. So what we do when we send teams of people out onto the land is, you know, these are people generally gifted in areas of discernment. And what I mean by that is, you know, they can see into the spiritual realm. They can hear the voice of the Lord, um, even feel things in their body as it's connected to what has happened on the land. And so we'll take notes on that. And then we pair that with a research component. And what that involves is digging through historical documents. We'll obtain demographic data we'll interview local people. And then um, we have found looking through old newspaper articles is incredibly insightful. And so we'll pull all of that information together and write up what's called a spiritual mapping prayer brief. And it has targeted prayer strategies. And what we're doing is we are informing intercession. We want to equip intercessors to be able to strike at the root of the issue Now, um, there are four types of iniquity that can establish a stronghold over a territory, and that is sexual perversion, idolatry, broken covenants, and bloodshed. So essentially what we're doing is we're assessing whether or not these things have happened on the land, because again, we want to equip intercessors to be able to go in and cleanse the land of that defilement by breaking off curses, by uprooting, you know, wicked structures that have been established 
Um, also, we want to render the king's decrees. You know, what is the Lord speaking over this land, over this territory, these people that live there? And we want to release the full measure of blessing. The ultimate goal of spiritual mapping is really to see, you know, people, cities, nations experience transformation. And this type of community transformation is actually a product of fervent and persevering prayer. And what it does is it releases the power of the gospel to spread um, among a community. Now, when we see the gospel spread and, and people's lives um, are changed and they, they come into a genuine relationship with Jesus, oftentimes we think of that as revival, right? Well, transformation, what sets it apart from revival is that when you have um, transformation in a community, you will actually see enduring changes in multiple levels of the community. So not just in church growth. So you'll see things like crime rates drop, um, you know, corruption being exposed. You'll see businesses begin just to flourish where maybe there were a lot of bankruptcies prior to that. You'll see like teachers and principals being open to having prayer and Bible studies in their schools. Even you'll see mayors and political leaders take a stand for righteousness. And so um, spiritual mapping was originally coined, that term was coined by George Otis Jr. So I would consider him kind of the foremost expert in spiritual mapping. And he identified five factors for community transformation. And those are the persevering leadership, for sure, among um, like pastoral leaders or um, city leaders in the in that community. Then also the fervent and united prayer. Then you have social reconciliation, a public power encounter, and then the diagnostic research or what we call spiritual mapping. And so essentially spiritual mapping is... Um, you know, it's a methodical approach to prayer and research. And there's two pillars or two factors that are present in every case of transformation that George Otis and his group, the Sentinel Group, has documented across the world. And those two factors are persevering leadership and the fervent and united prayer. And so what spiritual mapping does is it actually can set the stage for transformation if those two pillars exist. And so what we see with spiritual mapping is it's, it's combining this objective, which is, you know, that revelation that comes through discernment with the objective, which is, you know, that research documentation. And probably a good way to think about spiritual mapping is it's like the intelligence that allows spiritual warfare to be effective. And I often liken a spiritual mapping team to like a special forces unit in the military, so Navy SEALs, you know, they receive quality intelligence that allows them to carry out their mission with precision. And that's essentially what we're doing as, spirit, as a spiritual mapping team is we're collecting that intelligence and then equipping intercessors to be able to carry out um, that mission that the Lord has for them. So that's kind of a foundation of what spiritual mapping is. And I have... Um, I have a couple of stories I just want to share. They dovetail together. And then, um, Tim, I would love to get your perspective on um, how how the gatekeeping principles um, interlay with um, what the Lord's been doing through um, these stories. So the first thing that I'll, um, I just want to kind of share is that 
I would say prior to this summer, I had kind of an understanding of water spirits, but not to the depth where the Lord has um, brought me this summer. And so I want to speak about how do we deal with water spirits? Um, And for me, it began um, this summer when my husband and I, we celebrated our 31st wedding anniversary and his name is Tom. And we went to the Grand Bahamas, you know, week of vacation, totally excited. Um, The last time we were in the Bahamas was July of 2019. And that was a month before Hurricane Dorian decimated the island. And so we were very aware of hurricanes. We chose to go in June because um, we didn't want to be there during hurricane season. So anyways, we're preparing to go and we check the weather. Well, there's this tropical storm that has formed. And <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, no. And every day was forecasted for rain. And um, so we just began praying. I asked some of my intercessors to pray we get there and um, I am an early riser. I love the early morning times. And so my favorite time on the beach is literally before the first light of dawn. And so I'll, I sneak out of the room because my husband likes to sleep in. So I sneak out, try and be really quiet. I've got my Bible, my journal, my tablet, and my phone and a hot cup of tea. And I go out and I watch the sunrise um, and just spend time with the Lord. And it is the most glorious experience for me. So the second, I do that every day that we're there. So the second day we were there, I'm journaling, having a wonderful time with the Lord. And I look up and over the waters um, is this storm that has formed. And there's these dark clouds, there's thunder and lightning, and there's these sheets of rain that are coming down. And um, I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, I'm so comfortable. I'm in a groove, Lord. I can't go back to the room and turn on the light. So I just, I don't want to get soaking wet. And um, I just asked the Lord, I'm like, can you just send the rain somewhere else? And the Lord said, you command the storm. And I was like, uh, come again. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, you command the storm. And so I thought, okay. And if you literally, if we had a scale at that moment in time and you weighed my faith versus doubt, I probably had 51% faith and 49% doubt. Like I was just barely over in the faith category. And so with that little faith, I told that storm to dissipate and not rain on the beach where I was headed or where I was on. And so I just go back to journaling um, and uh, reading scripture and I don't know, maybe 10 minutes or so pass. And I realize oh, I'm not hearing the sound of thunder anymore. Uh And so I look up and, you know, this storm prior to that, it had the dark clouds, it had sheets of rain, thunder and lightning. It was gone. It was nowhere to be found. And I just sat back shocked. And the Holy Spirit said, imagine what you can do if you had more faith. (laughs) And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry, Lord, please forgive me for my lack of faith. And so the next morning, same routine, I'm down there having a great time with the Lord. And here comes a bigger storm. And these are, um, you know, being peeled off from this tropical storm that had formed. And so now this storm 
was easily twice as big. Like it filled the whole horizon of what I could see and dark clouds, thunder and lightning, sheets of rain as far as the eye can see and a tornado, a water spout. And I know enough to not presume that because I commanded one storm, I now get to command all the storms. And so I asked the Lord and I said, what what should I do? And he said, command the storm. And so I thought, okay, I know this storm is going to require more faith. And so I don't know what time. It was probably like 6.30 in the morning. I'm one of two people on the beach and I'm, I stand up, I got my Bible in my hand and I start pointing at that storm and telling it who I am and the authority that I have. And I start declaring scripture and I was, I was declaring Colossians 2, 8 and 9 for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And we have been given fullness of Christ to his head over every power and authority And so I was telling that storm because Jesus rebuked the winds and the waves and he commands the storm and I've got the fullness of Jesus in me. Then I am telling you to split in half, half of the rain go to the east, half of the rain go to the west and no rain fall on the beach where I'm at. So I get done saying this and the storm keeps coming. (laughs) So now the winds hit the beach, you know, right before all the rain drops And the winds are so strong, like I can't even keep my Bible open. The pages are flapping in the wind. And so I'm looking at this storm and I'm continuing to tell it who I am. And I realize like I, the doubt in me is starting to rise back up. And so the Lord reminds me of second Corinthians five, seven, where it says we live by faith and not by sight. And I realized, okay, I need to take my eyes off of this storm because it's causing me to doubt. And so I sat down and I couldn't open my Bible because, again, it was so windy, but my journal has thicker pages. So I put my arm on my journal so that the pages don't fly. And I'm writing and I'm commanding the storm as I'm writing. And again, maybe it was less time than the day before. So maybe like five minutes went by. And I look up and that storm did exactly what I told it to do. Right where the beach was, I was at, it had parted and blue sky was starting to peek through and sheets of rain were in the east and sheets of rain were going in the west, but no rain fell on the beach where I was at. And I literally just erupted in praise. So The Lord took that opportunity while I was in the Bahamas to teach me to walk in the authority that we have as believers. Now, fast forward um, another month, I'm back home, I'm preparing for a ministry trip, and the Lord began opening my eyes to realize that He didn't have me command every storm that came that week we were there, because there was two other storms in the morning that came. And he told me just not to command the storms. One day he told me just to come under the palapa and he was speaking to me about coming under the covering, the shadow of his wings. And it just was a beautiful time with him. But what he taught me was that the storms he had me command were storms that water spirits had stirred up. And so um, I, as I was preparing for this trip, um, now I'm going to tell you about a trip I took, a ministry trip, and I have to use 
fictitious names and locations because there is still a spiritual mapping assignment and spiritual warfare going on in this location. And um, we need to just move stealthily or be stealthy because um, the, we want to wait until the Lord's work is completed and the victory is secured. So I'm just going to use some fictitious names. Um, so anyways, I, I traveled to a major metropolitan area in, in the United States and I went to a suburb of that major city and the suburb was located on the lake. So I'm going to call it Lakeshore. And in my preparation prior to going, I was reading Psalm 144. And as I was reading it, the Lord told me that Lakeshore is dealing with water spirits. Now, I want to take a moment just to kind of lay out a biblical foundation um, as far as our understanding of what are water spirits in the water kingdom. So there are three realms that are talked about in, in the Bible, the earth, the waters, and the heavenlies. And let me read Exodus 20, verse four. It says, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. So there's the three realms. Then Ezekiel 26, 16 says, Then all the princes of the sea will come down from their thrones, lay aside their robes, and take off their embroidered garments. They will clothe themselves with trembling. They will sit on the ground, tremble every moment, and be astonished at you. Well, those princes of the sea are the gods of the water kingdom. Now, 71% of the earth's surface is covered by water. And Satan has chosen to build his power base in the waters. And we see this in Romans 13. It says, The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and each head had a blasphemous name. So the beast arises out of the waters. Now, the water kingdom is mighty, and you know, so many Christians are unaware of it. I was until really the Lord brought my attention to it this summer. After 25, 26 years of doing spiritual mapping, the water kingdom was not on my radar. And that just goes to show, you know, the Lord leads us when we're ready to receive revelation. And I'm so grateful that he has shown me some of these things. So as I'm reading scripture, one of the things that the Lord um, showed me as well is that Oftentimes, the phrase mighty waters in scripture is actually referring to the water kingdom and to water spirits. So I want to read Psalm 29.3, and it says, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. Okay, so the first mention of waters in this passage is referencing the water that covers the earth. The second mention of water in the phrase mighty waters is, again, it, that's referring to the water kingdom. And we learn this by looking at the Hebrew word for mighty that's used in this passage, and it's rav. And it means abundant, great, and strong, but it also means captain, chief, and prince. And so these, this phrase mighty waters is referring to the prince of the waters or the gods of the waters or water spirits. So now back to the preparation for this trip I'm taking. 
I have a team of intercessors. I call them strike force intercessors because they are amazingly accurate and just like strike at the root of issues. I love them. And we were just all preparing, asking the Lord to show us the spiritual dynamics over Lakeshore. Because I had been called there by a group of intercessors um, to train them about spiritual mapping and to help them understand you know, what they're facing. So one of the intercessors um, on the Strike Force team, the Lord began showing him that this, this area, this region is dealing with mind-numbing black goo. Egyptian-based paganism and a Jezebel spirit. And what he saw is he literally saw black goo, this is in the spirit, dripping out of squid and octopus spirits that were mounted over the sanctuary doors of churches. And so as people are walking into the church, that black goo covers them and they're, um, they track it all throughout the church. Well, at the same time he received that, I was reading um, portions of John Eckhart's book called Marine Demons. And this is what John says. He says, squid and octopus spirits are mind binding and mind controlling spirits that have tentacles wrapped around the minds of people hindering them from thinking clearly. These spirits cause much confusion and keep people from seeing the truth. These are powerful spirits that often require fasting to break. So then another one of my intercessors, um, she saw in the spirit a water spout that formed over the lake. So Lake Shore, the city is, you know, on the, the shore of a large lake. And this water spout formed over an area called Turtle Cove. And again, that's fictitious um, name. And Turtle Cove currently is this massive real estate um, development where there's going to be a huge resort, lots of housing and businesses. Well, what the Holy Spirit showed her is that the debris that's flying out of this water spout were squid and octopus. So then I start doing a bit more research. And one of the things that's so beautiful is oftentimes we see that the Lord brings confirmation in the natural realm to what's happening in the spiritual realm over a territory. So you will see natural manifestations of what's going on in the spiritual realm. So anyways, I'm researching Turtle Cove and um, I find a video that is a rendition of what it will look like once the resort is completed. And they have this in the middle of the the bay or um, the part of the lake that they're building in, they have this massive water feature that has these huge jumbotrons. And there's a video playing on the jumbotron and it's featuring squid and octopus. And so I know that, okay, the Lord is um, leading us down this trail. Well, then... Also, we discover that the land where this Turtle Cove is being developed, um, that land has been defiled by broken covenants and corrupt business deals. So back in the 80s, a large real estate developer um, was who was in large part responsible for the, the housing crash of 87, he was developing land near this Turtle Cove and he and five others went to prison over the fraud that was committed with those land developments. So you have, you have fraud, you have broken covenants in that land. Well, the current deal of Turtle Cove is wrought with corruption. And so the former economic development director 
of Lakeshore was the one to establish this deal. And it was a massive pay to play scheme. And he actually fled the state because of lawsuits over how corrupt um, this, this um, Turtle Cove development is. So we're gathering that information. And then one of the things the Lord um, speaks to me is that the water God that they're dealing with in Lakeshore is Rahab. And this isn't Rahab from Jericho. I'll, um, I'll, I'm going to read a couple of scriptures that kind of help us understand this water God Rahab. This is from Psalm 89, verse 9 through 10. It says, you rule the raging of the sea when its waves rise. You still them. You have broken Rahab in pieces as one who is slain. You have scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Then Job 9.13 says, God does not restrain his anger. Even the cohorts of Rahab cowered at his feet. Job 26.12 says, by his power, he churned up the sea. By his wisdom, he cut Rahab to pieces. And then Isaiah 30 verse 7 says, to Egypt, whose help is utterly useless. Therefore, I call her Rahab, the do-nothing. So when you look up Rahab in the Hebrew, what it means is breath, storm, arrogance, mythical sea monster, and it's emblematic of Egypt. And it comes from the Hebrew root word that means bluster, proud, and strength. And so Rahab manifests in pride. And it was pride that hardened Pharaoh's heart. So why is Rahab connected to Egypt? And um, I want to read Exodus 7, verse 14 through 18, because this kind of helps us understand It says, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this, you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. Okay, so we see here that Pharaoh goes down to the waters of the Nile each morning. Well, why does he do that? You know, some commentators say that he was cooling himself off because in the morning, the the temperature of the Nile River would have been cooler. So he was just refreshing on himself. And certainly that could be one layer of explanation. But I think more importantly, we see that he was actually consulting with the water gods. See, the Egyptians believed that the Nile was sacred. And so Pharaoh was going down to the banks of the Nile to seek power from the water gods, just like, you know, when we spend time with the Lord in the morning to strengthen our day, Pharaoh was doing that. He was seeking um, the power from the water gods. Well, we see, you know, Pharaoh was filled with pride. Again, a manifestation of Rahab. He thought he could go up against the almighty Elohim. And then we see here in this passage, you know, the first of the 10 plagues was Yahweh confronting the gods of the water kingdom. Now, Kunim was originally considered a water god in Egypt, and he was thought to rule over the waters of the earth, including the rivers and the lakes of the underworld. And so he was associated with being the source of the Nile and creator of humans. 
he was known as the divine potter. So they, they believed that he took the clay from the banks of the Nile and formed humans. And Kunam, he was, um, you know, the most popular of the ancient Egyptian gods until Ra, you know, came into prominence. But here we see, you know, the first wonder that was performed by Moses was directly confronting the gods of the water kingdom. Well, then when Yahweh parted the Red Sea, he dealt with the gods of the water kingdom as well. And we see this in Psalm 74, verse 13 and 14. It says, it was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. So, okay, back to the story of this ministry trip. So I'm on the flight over there and the Lord says to me that Lakeshore is a spiritual gate for Rahab into this major metropolitan city. Now, this major city has been ground zero for the bloodshed of millions of innocent lives in our nation. And so the Lord was showing me that that this Lakeshore community is the spiritual gate and the intercessors there needed to know that. Now, again, we often will see in the natural confirmation um, of what's going on in the spiritual so in this Lakeshore community, you know, there's streets that are named Mermaid Circle, Neptune Circle. There are businesses called um, the Mermaid Ceylon, and their moniker is We Believe in Mermaids. Well, mermaids are sexual water spirits that function underneath the, the, the gods of the water, so the principalities of the waters. Then you have other businesses called the Mindful Mermaid. That's a metaphysical store the Mermaid Bar, the Mermaid Raw Bar and and Champagne, and then also another business called Neptune Society. Well, where it became even more interesting is um, as I was doing research prior to going, the Lord led me to this one particular church. Now, this city has mega churches, and this one particular church boasts 57,000 members. And I watched just um, a brief clip of one of their services and the associate pastor um, in the first few sentences of his message says, this is the greatest church in the world that reeks of pride and arrogance. That's a manifestation of Rahab. Well, what I found out on this trip is I have a friend who lives in this major city that is a singer songwriter worshiper. And she was ministering at a women's conference years ago. And at this conference where women from all different churches, you know, in that metroplex, that, that area, well, one of the churches was this 57,000 member church. And so when she and her intercessor were ministering over the women that go to that church, her intercessor saw squid and octopus on each of the women's head releasing this black goo. And that was years before we got there. And so we knew that the Lord was showing us these things. Hmm. So what we did is um, just waited on the Lord for the strategy for these intercessors. Because again, spiritual mapping is equipping intercessors to be able to go in and strike at the root of the issue. And the Lord showed us eight different strategies. And we just... 
we surrender that to them, the local people, and say, pray into these. And if the Lord highlights specific strategies, then go for it, essentially. It's not like we're telling them what to do. We're just offering them. This is what we hear the Lord saying, but you pray into it. And so the first is to confess and repent. Um, Psalm 32, verse 5 through 7 says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely, when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. So confession and repentance is a strategy um, to, to come against the water spirits. Also fasting. Now, oftentimes water spirits are expelled only with fasting because fasting is this self-humbling and it's walking in the opposite spirit of pride and it empowers our spiritual warfare. Well, Matthew 17, it says, Lord, have mercy on my son for he is an epileptic and suffers severely for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, for assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Well, this was a water spirit that was torturing this boy. And one way we clue into this is because one of the ways it was trying to kill the boy was by drowning. And these water spirits, they empower their kingdom by bringing death and bloodshed to their waters. Now, the third strategy was, you know, we encourage them to worship and extol the name of the Lord over the waters because, you know, water spirits hate praise because they're filled with pride. Then we told them, um, you know, decree the word of God over the waters, like literally put the word of God into the lake. Um, you know, we know from Isaiah 55, 11, that the Lord, the, God's word does not return to him void. And we know that water has memory. And so literally inserting the word of God into the lake was one of the strategies. Um, and then also asking God to break the head of the dragons in the water and to cut Rahab to pieces. And that goes back to the passage I read in Job 26, 12, just a moment ago. Then also to cleanse the water with salt. And that ties into 2 Kings 2. Um, the seventh strategy was to blow the shofar over the waters, which represents the voice of the Lord over the waters, which is Psalm 29.3. And then finally to release a new song. And this is from Psalm 144, 7 through 10, which says, reach down your hand from on high, deliver me and rescue me from the mighty waters. From the hands of foreigners whose mouth are full of lies, whose right hands are deceitful, I will sing a new song to you, my God. On the ten-string lyre, I will make music to you, to the one who gives victory to kings, who delivers his servant David. Okay, so that was the strategy. We had a wonderful, amazing time with them. We leave, or I leave, come back, and I'm still in contact with this lead intercessor. 
And I think that she is actually a gatekeeper for this city, Lakeshore. Her and her husband have lived there 32 years. She is a prophetic intercessor, fervent, persevering intercessor, but she's also a businesswoman and she's owned several businesses in this town. She has um, great influence with the mayor of the city. Um, Her and her daughter just recently bought a... um, historic site uh, in the downtown area, and they're going to refurbish it to bring more life back to the downtown area. So anyways, she's the one that brought me in. And after I left, she came under just tremendous attack. She caught a witch in her backyard, um, cursing her property. And then what happened is she has a pool and covering her pool deck were these black water bugs, like thousands of them everywhere. And her pool guy came in to deal with it. And he said he has never seen anything like that. Then they had a leak in their pool, a leak in their porch that um, uh, damaged some of their home. Then her business, um, the brands that normally pay um, for her business stopped paying Um, And then she had to do taxes and paid an enormous amount of taxes. So she has never lost so much money in such a short period of time. Well, I give, I commend her because so many people would have thrown in the towel and walked away and just said, Lord, get me out of this situation. But she did not. She kept persevering. And so she began fasting. She broke the curses off her property. Um, her business, they started paying, those brands started paying again. So there was turnaround in her business. She did have to pay a ton of money to get the pool and her home fixed. Um, But then she gathered the intercessors and they went to the lake and they had, they wrote scripture on rocks. They anointed the rocks, they repented, they worshiped, and then they prayed and threw the rocks into the lake both on one side of the lake. And then they went to the town that's a significant town on the other side of the lake. And they did that. That same week breakthrough came. And what the Lord began doing is exposing the sexual perversion that's in the land. Um, A business owner um, got exposed. He was having sex in his business and someone walked in on him and he's married. And so that got exposed the mayor of the city began cleaning house in the city offices, meaning he fired the economic development director and five other department heads as as well as a number of city employees. And this this intercessor, um, she was texting me and she's like, Laura, I have never seen this many vacancies in our city um, offices in the 32 years I've lived here. Like the Lord is cleaning house. The other thing that um, she just found out is Turtle Cove is imploding. It's going bankrupt. And so that that corruption and that fraud that was um, in that land, it's the Lord is uprooting it all. So she, right now, she says, we're in between. The Lord is uprooting and tearing down and, and we're about to see the planting and the building. And so they're praying that in the planting and the building, the Lord's purposes um, 
you know, come to pass. And they're in the midst of elections right now. And so they are praying that righteous leaders will come into and fill those vacant seats. So I wanted to share that because um, I feel like to some degree, um, well, that shows what spiritual mapping does. But also I'm wondering about um, the gatekeeping principles, um, Tim, that, that you work with and just how there might be some overlap with that. One thing Laura mentioned that I want to just, you know, put a emphasis on is that when you're learning to do um, the spiritual warfare type stuff and walking in God's ways with these things, it's amazing when God says you can go do this and even the weather obeys, but it also is just because you can doesn't always mean you should. And that was one of the things that I, I heard in what she said is that sometimes these things are connected to weather. Sometimes they were connected to a spirit. Sometimes God controls it and it's a judgment. And so being able to hear clearly and not just move in what we think our authority is, but to hear clearly each time to walk in God's ways is very important. I appreciate how you put that. Um, the other thing is, when it comes to the whole idea of spiritual mapping, I think it's been done in the heavenly realms on a massively detailed uh, perspective with the blueprint of Father God. You know, that the idea of mapping now, we're trying to understand some things, and you you put it as clear as anyone I've ever heard. But I would enlarge it one more level where we've got to sit in the heavenly realms enough to see what the original design was by Father God himself. You know, When he made this spot on the earth I'm looking at, what was his intentions? You know? Most of the time, what we build or what we have done has been our own ideas superimposing on something that was once holy and uh, honoring to God, and we built something there for ourselves. You know, Even if we got a word from God, for instance, and he told us to go build a church, we don't often ask him, what kind of church, what do you want, what, how do you want the worship to be done, who do we need to involve with that, what are the relationships that are involved. We don't get the full blueprint. We generally get a word from God, and then we go do it the way we think it's right to do. And we superimpose that again on a design that might be different. You know? So what we believe is right in our own eyes is what we tend to, to do even when we're hearing God. You know, We often don't hear him in such detail that we get the original blueprint right. So this is why it's important to come along. And you're one of the first ones I've heard in quite a long time, at least since the 90s, that has, you know, verbalized the process of tearing down, rooting out, and destroying, you know, that we can't build and plant just to get revival and transformation. We have to tear down, root out, and destroy something first, you know. And so for the most part, Christians have been taught to do spiritual warfare, that that's what we think is the tearing down. And then we discover that I don't really have any grace or authority to get something out of the land until I get it out of me. So first principle of gatekeeping is whatever I allow in my heart, God may allow in the city. Now, because I'm trying to be righteous, 
I'm not going to blatantly go out and sin, hopefully. But if I do do some things, I'll maybe compromise and I'll do it with great restraint, you know. So maybe I just get mad at my friend and I don't like him anymore because he didn't do something I wanted or I didn't do something he wanted. And, and I start hating my brother. You know, I harbor that in my heart for a while. I chew on it. I, I, I nurse that. I get offended with something that he does. And then I sin against him by ceasing to pray for him. You know, that combination opens the door to a city for murder. Because if I hate my brother, it's like the sin of murder. So I've looked at cities that have high crime rates that involve uh, murder or innocent bloodshed. You could put abortion in that that, uh, category also. I find in the church always leaders are mad at each other, not working together cutting one another off, competitive, you know, not praying for one another. And then intercessors have come along and done this superfluous job to try to figure out how to unify and how to bring some of that back into order where we start praying together and start praying for one another again. And that has gained a lot of ground in many cities, but it usually stumbles along the way because someone takes the leadership and doesn't get out of their heart the things that God wants to transform. And every time a leader leader rises up and claims authority before they humble themselves to to claim, let me empty myself, let me be the the first one to repent, let me be the first one to take up the cause that is broken in my city. I I see the the process then gets bottlenecked and usually doesn't move forward very well, and um, and it's very difficult for us to navigate this because the body of Christ has been taught to be under authority, and I agree with the principle of being under authority. But what was added to the idea of being under authority was a wrong religious idea that said Jesus left town. And he's going to return one day, and until he does, I'm in charge. Now, there is some truth to God may give me a duty and want me to perform a function, and I have to be faithful in that grace. But what happens when we preach the authority and the positional authority is we require the body to be subject to our position, not subject to the functioning of our grace. And the functioning of my grace increases exponentially when I become Christ-like. It gets bottlenecked when I just try to do it with me. Now, why is that important? Because that is gatekeeping itself. We have to learn how to gatekeep our own heart before we get much idea of understanding how to steward over land. And yet, we've got that backwards. Most of the body of Christ is trying to figure out how to steward over something that they want and need or like or participate in before they have learned how to govern their own heart. So we end up trying to build a city with a whole conglomeration of lots of people that know Jesus, but they're trying to do thousands of different things without being in one mind, one accord. 
without being in um, the perfect will of God and without asking instructions of the one that made them. This is why we become subject to religious spirits instead of to God himself.